Hey, everybody. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me on this Thursday morning edition of Down to Earth. It's the show in which we talk about the issues that matter. And today on our show, we're going to talk about something that matters, and it's called the myth of violent neighborhoods. We somehow have to wrap our minds around the fact that for 30 years, we have been thinking that there are dangerous neighborhoods in cities across the country. And in re-examining it, based on statistical data over time, researchers have come up with some ideas that I think we all should be aware of that is going to help all of us, especially us, the members of the public, to understand what is a dangerous neighborhood and maybe what you think is a dangerous neighborhood really isn't and what is really going on. So we're going to break down into that. Today is Thursday, and I'm still getting used to the idea that it is February. Today is the 6th day of February. And I just want to tell you that if you have not started on your New Year's goals, hey, how are you? If if you haven't started on your New Year's goals, guess what? I live in Detroit, Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, in the USA. I presume that you're perhaps from another country. Please tell us where you're from, right? Uh, but if you haven't started on your goals yet, it probably is time to start, right? Today is the sixth day of February, so it's kind of like, oh, you're in Oklahoma. Okay, well, come to Michigan sometime. <laughs> Right. So I want to talk about maybe this doesn't apply to you guys in Tulsa, Oklahoma or so. But for those of us who live in adjacent to metropolitan areas around the country, whether it's Baltimore, Philly, New York, L.A., and definitely Detroit, uh, we we've been looking at balance in these communities for some time and trying to understand What is it that promotes violence and how violence happens? There are a number of factors that are present. And what we are seeing in the last 10 to 15 years is that where gentrification occurs, the violence is reduced. So it it makes social planners and urban planners think, well, if we gentrify more neighborhoods, then the people who are violent will move out. When in fact, the backstory behind that is that poverty is what is driving it. But I want to talk a little bit about how did we get to the myth of dangerous neighborhoods? Where did that ideology and philosophy come from? Who came up with that idea that neighborhoods are violent? And what I found was that in 1982, two writers, seriously, two writers, George L. Kelly and James Q. Wilson, uh, came up with the idea that neighborhoods are violent or become violent based on a broken windows philosophy. Most of us may not remember that, but this was a thing, right? And based on a broken windows philosophy, he posited that if if windows are broken in a neighborhood, then more likely, eventually, there's a contributing factor of the neighborhood breaking down. Eventually, the neighborhood will start experiencing prostitution. That was a big thing back then, because apparently prostitution led to all kinds of bad things. You see that victimization of women immediately, like seriously, robbery and gun violence became a thing later on. But the important thing was how these folks came up with this idea and what that idea led to, because it created a new kind of policing called the broken windows policing. And the broken windows policing was that if massive levels 
of law enforcement are applied to these neighborhoods, then it would reduce violence. 30 years later, what we have found is that that never worked and that didn't work because we really did not understand the nature of the problem. We really did not understand why violence was occurring in the first place. What we should have done was instead of reacting, was being proactive, trying to figure out, well, why are these folks violent? Who is committing the violence? A few years ago, I, I, I heard the Detroit police chief say that the violence in the city of Detroit was confined to specific parts of the city and specific neighborhoods in the city. You probably have heard me talk about zip code 48205 by the residents who live in that zip code that place is referred to as 48205. But what the police chief was saying is that the violence in the city is confined to groups of people. These people know each other and somehow have uh, a relationship with one another that typically results in violence, whether that violence is a shooting or a non-fatal shooting or a, fatal, or a homicide, right? And it was interesting because I had often wondered why you would drive through parts of Detroit and those areas are untouched by violence. You know, nobody's walking around in the streets firing shots. They're not firing at random people. Typically when the violence occurs, it's because the people who are shot at and the people who are shooting have a relationship, right? And and so when I thought about that, good morning, good day to you, good morning, thanks for joining. When I thought about that, I began to wonder if that were true across the country. So a few years ago, I was part of a group of folks who were, uh, we all were examining ways to prevent violence in the community. And I follow them sometimes because I think what they're saying makes sense, right? They began to look at violence from the victim's perspective. Then the, the Department of Justice also does that. The Department of Justice is looking at what is the relationship between the perpetrator and the victim? Because if we understand the relationship, we're able to disassemble what is going on that causes the violence. Violence is curious because there are only in every city that statisticians and social scientists look at, violence is confined to only small parts of the city. In other words, this report that I'm reading on The Atlantic is saying that in every factor of every, every state, every city, they have looked at where violence occurs. The violence is occurring by less than 1% of the population, but the 1% who are committing the violence affects more than half the population. So there is only, there's, there's always only one group of people causing the violence. If you were to live in the metro Detroit area, or anywhere in Michigan for that matter, everybody knows about Detroit's east side. Man, if you pick up the news cameras at any time, there's most likely to be violence on the east side. It's as if the east side is a whole other state, it's a whole other country unto itself. As a matter of fact, there's a specific zip code, 48205, that if you are caught in that driving in that zip code with a gun that is not registered to you, that's an automatic 15 to, to life. If you use that gun to commit a crime in that zip code, it is life. 
right? And what you what we are looking at over time is that some of these draconian policies were implemented because the community cried out that we need help. But what this strict policing has done is, is in fact, it hasn't made the citizens feel any safer because the citizens, when they have issues, will now not go to formal means to report it. So they're not going to go to the police station to report that the neighbor had his dog doing something because they're afraid the neighbor will take his gun out and shoot them. So instead, if the neighbor's dog attacks their child or if the neighbor tried to attack their child or, 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 or attack them, they're most likely to do what? To resolve the dispute themselves. Hence, we see this increase in violence and we wonder why these happen. This is why police sometimes, these cases go unresolved because no one will ever come forward to say what the true relationship that exists between the victim and the perpetrator. You see what I'm saying? So because of that, you have to look at it. So the, the, it's called the broken window policing. Uh, and when you look at it, it's interesting because it was written by a group of social scientists who perhaps went to a neighborhood and perhaps thought that the, it, the, these people, these people, right? The minute you hear somebody say these people, you already know what's going on. These people have issues because there's a breakdown in social order. So if they go into the neighborhood and they see where these people live in a neighborhood where there are broken windows, broken buildings, I'll get, get to you in a minute, right? Broken windows and broken buildings, then they assume that these people are contributing to prostitution, drug, drug expediency, whatever kind of drug uh, trafficking or drug usage or drug selling is going on, but these people are doing it. The problem is that they're, they're only in every community, without fail, in every situation where violence occurs, you are most likely to find that there are only 1% of the population of that city that is doing it. So I'm going to give you some facts to back this up. Uh, in Chicago, for instance, what they found, 6% of the population account for 70% of non-fatal gunshot victims. Are you listening, right? The broken window syndrome, the theory is if you drive down the street with broken windows and litter, it's high on the list of crime. There you go. Dude, seriously, think about it. You see what I mean? right? Uh, serious violence is concentrated in particular places and among particular people. That is something that policing has shown over time. That is something that the relationship, see, here's, let me role play for you. Uh, years ago, I was part of a symposium. And we talked extensively about violence prevention in, in communities across the country, right? Here's one of the things that we found. There is a distinct relationship between the victim and the perpetrator, right? So when the police leave, because the police come in to address the situation, when they leave, somebody has to collect the data. The person who is injured or killed has a family who are left behind to mourn, right? So we would look at, we collected the data. Well, who is this? Who are you? Who, how did this happen? When we looked at the facts, it was curious because what happened afterwards is there is always some kind of linkage that connects the victim to the perpetrator. There was always a, a line, a connection 
of some sort. And it's curious because that line or connection usually leads to other shootings because sometimes there's what is called retaliatory shootings. Like seriously, you, you've seen where people, uh, you've heard of drive-by shootings. That's typically a retaliation of some sort based on something that has gone wrong. Invariably, what we found is that this usually leads back to a specific group of people. The data does not lie. It's the fact. You see what I mean? But the police have left. They're busy either trying to solve the crime or based on the particular epigenetics of that community and the, the dynamics of the relationships within that community, that tells the police right away that crime is going to be solved. In fact, the police who police these areas, they already know that certain crimes will never be, be solved because no one is going to come forward to give any, because they're afraid of retaliation. So it comes back to the fact that in every city, the people who are committing the crimes are less than the total percentage population of the entire city. Yet, we still describe whole communities as dangerous. And when you look at the facts, you will find that the violence is concentrated in specific parts of that city. Right now in the city of Detroit, there's a huge renaissance going on. The renaissance, though, is consigned to the areas that have businesses, areas that are populated by whites, areas where white businesses operate. The neighborhoods have not been affected or impacted by the renaissance. However, because Detroit is an important city, I almost said town, they would kill me if I called Detroit a town. But because Detroit is an important city, because we lie next to an international border, the government just cannot sit back and let things run roughshod because while they're busy probably shooting each other up, people could be coming across the border without any kind of uh, 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 oversight on who or what is coming in. So the importance, the strategic geographic location of Detroit then required a different set of crime fighting tools. So they have isolated pockets. There are isolated pockets in Detroit where violence happens. There's one called the Murder Mac. I mean, it's off Joy Road and Southfield. Everybody knows that. You don't frequent that area. You boom, pass it on the freeway, right? There's the east side, which is it's a whole set of dynamics. Like, you can't really figure out what's going on on the east side. I mean, you have to really ask yourself. And even within the east side of Detroit, there are specific areas where violence happens. This is true in East Baltimore. This is true in California, in LA. This is true in New York. This is true in every other city in the country. There is a particular relationship. Now, under a previous administration, the Department of Justice somehow allocated funds to various community agencies because the government likes to collect information. The government likes to collect data so they know how to address it. They want to know what is going on that is causing it. We know drugs are a problem. We know that human trafficking and sex trafficking poses a distinct problem. This is why for years, folks like me have been saying that sex trafficking and human trafficking is not a, a city problem. It's a national issue because the network has to be national just like drug trafficking. Because it, it's kind of curious to me how a trafficker is going to come from uh, Alaska 
or come from another state and come into somebody else's territory. I'm like, it's the same network of people. It's the same people who are dealing drugs who are into human trafficking. Do you see what I'm saying? And it made people scratch their heads because they've been doing this for so many years. They were pretty sure they had all the answers. And people like me were just sitting there frustrated on the sidelines watching and trying to see because all I was seeing it was, was a fresh set of eyes. That it has to be the same group of people who are committing the same crimes, who are involved in all the criminal activities of the city. Doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that just seem to, you're all nodding because you're all like, yeah, that just makes perfect sense. Of course it does. Why then, if you look at a crime organizations like the mafia, right, and, and how they're organized, aren't they kind of confined their activities to specific parts of their territory? And each part of the territory is controlled by one group of people, but they all operate under an umbrella organization where the Godfather came in, right? Why do you think that violence that we're seeing wouldn't be the same effect? So what they did 30 years ago was they said, well, all neighborhoods, if you won't drive through a neighborhood and you see a window that is broken, chances are there is some serious drug trafficking and there is robbery, and there is prostitution going on in that neighborhood. Hence, a heavy police presence would come in in predominantly Black and Hispanic neighborhoods. And what we found was that Black and Hispanic neighborhoods were 30 times more likely to be impacted by heavy policing. Consequently, more Black and brown bodies ended up in the criminal justice system. You were guilty. Even if you lived in that neighborhood, you had nothing to do with the crime you would still just be guilty just because of association, because you live there. There are so many people who can tell you that if you really know the dynamics that take place in these neighborhoods, people will tell you that the people who are the originators of the crime, they know everybody who lives there. They know who is doing what, to whom, and when. They do not have any business with the people who are not interfering in their business. But the heavy police presence coming in doesn't know that. So they see a black and brown kid walking through the neighborhood. And immediately, because of the color of his skin and the fact that he lives and resides in the neighborhood, suddenly he's guilty of whatever criminal activity that is going on. That's how come we see so many of these are emerging and are coming out of these innocence projects because they were had nothing to do with it. Sometimes the people who are committing violent crime in these neighborhoods, they're specific. And they target certain places. Look at the statistics. In Chicago, 6% of the population account for, in the city of Chicago, account for 70% of non-vital gunshot victims. That means of the whole entire city, only a few are the ones firing the shots and criminalizing everybody else. But we say that the neighborhood is dangerous. Uh, someone is saying, in my city, my, my viewer, Trevor's, is saying, in my city, the police are setting up a gun and knife amnesty. That is a good idea. Setting up a gun and knife amnesty to get people to drop it off, don't pick it up at, and without fear or reprisal. Will people trust the police? Will the police not have surveillance cameras? 
and use facial recognition technology to see who's dropping off what gun so they can go back and look at them. Violence, don't get me wrong, there is violence in our community. And violence is a problem, right? Let me see what else someone is saying. Some neighborhoods are dangerous. Absolutely. 48205 in Detroit is called 48205-DIE. The statistics are that if you're a black male born in that, in, that, in that community, you are not going to live to see 26. And I knew that just blew your mind just like it did mine. Right? That's a dangerous neighborhood. Dangerous. But the crime that is being committed there is not being committed by everyone who lives in the neighborhood. That's what we need to understand. Hence, we need to adjust our policing so that when we go into neighborhoods, you don't just lock up everybody because everybody is not committing the crime. I suspect there are some parts after a while. I think the police have come to understand this. But when you look at it, we kind of as a society put the burden on the police to get rid of the criminals who are committing the crime. So we kind of turn our backs knowing that if they come in and do a sweep, they're going to sweep up everybody, and, but we want to be safe. And, but the real criminal operates behind the shield. He's rarely ever found. He's rarely ever caught. Because nobody dares to go say it's him because of fear of reprisal, because he has a network around him. Penetrating that criminal organization is something else. And sometimes what you find is that in looking at that criminal organization, the tentacles spread way outside of the community. I've often asked myself, does anybody wonder where the guns are coming from? Because they don't manufacture the guns in these communities. So who is supplying them with the guns? You mean to tell me that they're just driving to meet another guy from Flint or Saginaw or something? No. Who is financing the drugs? Where are they getting the money from to buy the drugs, to pay for the drugs in the first place? Have you ever wondered about that? Uh, Switch over to YouTube. Uh, I have this. People have been telling me Twitter has been going crazy. Uh, Switch over to YouTube. You can enjoy me. On YouTube, it's much more, much better, right? Right. So have, I have often thought, where is the money coming from that supplies the drugs, and what they do with the money? They they're literally just driving around and have like money just in places. I don't think so, because they take some of the money to the bank, and they're buying property, and they buy property in their family members' names and so on. But where is the money coming from? If you really were to examine it and you look at it, you get an idea that this is a much, much bigger problem. I think sometimes that we are afraid to find out who really is beyond it. I am saying that the problem of violence is not something that is necessarily going to go away until we understand the entire problem. We're so busy looking at the end of it where someone gets shot, but we're not looking back at the timeline. And looking back, well, how did they? How did he get the gun? Where did he? Who is the supplier of the gun? Where is he getting the money from to finance that? When we start looking at those kinds of activities and those relationships, you get a better picture of what is really going on in neighborhoods. There are pockets of Detroit, for instance, that uh, 
are, have been subject to gentrification, right? And in those pockets, there's no gun and violence activity because the people who live there have no connection to the people who are committing the violence. Do you see that? So I'm talking about Detroit because that's what I know more than uh, than the statistics from other cities, right? I'm talking about based on experience, based on my observation of violence in Detroit over more than a decade, right? Because like everyone else, I was curious about where is this violence coming from? What is motivating it? Why are people killing one another? Then I discovered that people were killing people whom they knew or people whom they had a dispute with. Then I began to look at the, 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 the interconnectedness of drugs because I have found that wherever drug trafficking exists, violence exists. Wherever prostitution and sex trafficking occur, violence exists. And so when you look at those interconnectedness, you have to ask yourself, well, what can we do about it? In a lot of ways, I think law enforcement is overwhelmed because they're not getting a lot of cooperation from the victims because the victims are afraid. And sometimes, to be honest with you, they go to court and it gets thrown out on, on, on a technicality and the same dude comes back around and sends somebody else to blow somebody else off so nobody is bothering with that. But it is still the same group of people. I, I feel that one of the things we need to do is to invest more in communities. I think that uh, city administrators throughout the country really need to look at when businesses move out of a community, those buildings now remain unoccupied. Find good use for them. Cities need to take some of the money that they make from taxes to reinvest in their own communities. That will shine a light and expose the violence. Let me give you an example. A few years ago in the city of Detroit, the, the former mayor, Kwame Kilpatrick, the guy who went to jail for 28 years for bribery and corruption for $500, I don't know who, how that happened, right? But he wasn't a good mayor. He didn't take care of the city. He shut off the streetlights. He took money out of the budget for basic necessities in the city which resulted in an uptick in violence. When, the, when a mayor finally came in who turned the lights on in the city, you found that the violence ended. When policing, when they hired more police officers and there were more police cars on the street, guess what it did? It mitigated violence. So because the people who were committing the violence, when they realized they weren't going to be held accountable, they came out in the open. But when they realized, when the light started shining on them, they retreated to the darkness. It's the same group of people. If you really sit down and talk to police officers in precincts in those communities, what you're going to hear is what you're hearing from me as well, is that we know who is doing it. We just can't catch it. Nobody will come forward and say it. The cops are, they're human like you and I. You think that they're not going to want to lose their lives. Right? But we refer to, if you were to look at the city of Detroit, you hear about the city of Detroit, but you never heard about the specific parts of Detroit that are impacted by violence. But they'll tell you that Detroit is a violent neighborhood. Detroit is bigger than the city of San Francisco. Detroit is bigger geographically, bigger than the five boroughs of Manhattan, Brooklyn, Bronx, Staten Island, Detroit is bigger than that, geographically. 
How on God's green earth did you expect 2,800 police officers to police an area that wide? Impossible. What we need is to go back into these neighborhoods and invest. So if you think broken, broken windows is going to help, it never helps. Nowhere. I've driven through other cities where there are broken windows. It just looks like a blighted area to me. But it is a contributing. I have, too, have been socialized to associate that, that there must be violence in that area. Not necessarily. Right? Uh, I-69, let me see what you think. I-69 is in Michigan. Late at night, here them <laughs> And the thing is, the police know that there are specific individuals who are committing those late night broken windows equals crystal meth. Right? The police do know that there are specific individuals in specific areas that are committing those acts. I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example. On New Year's Eve in Detroit, these people, some folks, decided to get so excited, they made a video of themselves uh, celebrating the arrival of the new year and the new decade by firing shots. Unfortunately for them, there's something called facial recognition technology. So the Detroit Police Department has a whole cyber unit. And all they do is sit down and study people's faces all day, every day. So when they saw their videos circulating on social media, because people want to put their happenings out there, they started looking at people's faces and zooming in, zooming in, and found that some of these folks were actually people, some of whom were out on parole. They rescinded all those. They rescinded. They they caught. They got everybody. All twelve people involved were finally caught by the police. Right? Technology today is way different than it was thirty years ago. It was easy thirty years ago to say a broken window in a neighborhood is going to cause the eventual decline of that neighborhood. But what no one looked at was who was firing the shot. I'm one of those persons like you. I like to get to the root cause of the problem. I don't just, just don't want to see the symptoms. I want to know who is doing what, when, and how. Because once you identify the root cause of a problem, it's going to help you solve the problem. I A few years ago, I was invited to uh, talk about uh, intimate partner violence, upstate Michigan. And the organization that invited me is based in uh, is based in Lansing, and they asked me to uh, to to provide them with some uh, data prior to my arrival. And when I sent them what my presentation was going to look like, they called me back because a little known fact was that they assumed that intimate partner violence was confined to Southern Michigan, and that it was in higher numbers here. But the facts speak for themselves. My data came from the state police who collects all the data around the state. And when I looked at it, based on the per capita income of state Michigan, the per capita income suggested that intimate partner violence was higher than it was down here. Ooh, Jesus. That ensued a flurry of activity about trying to find programs to address that problem. This was about four years ago now, about four years ago. 
think it's about four years now, 2016, right? But do you, it changed the way they looked at it. I also think that a lot of what urban violence is about and the answers, it's not that there aren't answers to it. It's not that there aren't mechanisms that can be applied to it. Urban violence is considered urban because black and brown people live in these areas. Consequently, there is not an interest by the prevailing ideology and the prevailing policymakers to address that issue. And so it never gets addressed. It's up to you and I to sit down and say, what are we going to do? So I know that the people who commit these crimes are just as social media savvy as you and I are. In fact, they probably are more. I know they watch videos on YouTube. They listen to podcasts, right? And I'm asking them, you look, you're listening to this. I need you to stop and think before you pick up that gun just because you have a, a, a dispute with someone. A lot of what we're seeing, the chief of police in Detroit some years ago is right. A lot of this is caused by people just having a dispute. You know what another uh, dynamic to this was that a woman is sleeping with this guy, with this baby daddy and this one over here and ensues a violent confrontation that typically results. So the the sex was was the draw between the two of them. So if it, it comes back, you're all going to laugh now. It's sex, drugs, and alcohol all the time. That's really what it comes down to. Who is invading whose territory, whether it's sex, because they, they know each other, whether it's drugs, somebody took somebody's drugs, didn't pay for it, or somebody is infiltrating on somebody else's territory, or it's alcohol. What's up with that, right? But does this mean that an entire neighborhood is there's a neighborhood there are neighborhoods inside of Detroit where violence does not happen there's Cork Town that has now completely been gentrified there are other neighborhoods in the university district where even high court judges live there's no violence there but nationally you hear that Detroit is a violent neighborhood but there are pockets within that violence does not happen. Why? Because again, the smallest percentage of people who live there are the ones who are perpetrating the violence on everyone else. I think sometimes even the police might be intimidated because these folks are are very violent. Uh, A few months ago in November, a police officer was killed because he went to a scene because a young girl's life was, was threatened. Some dude decided that he wanted to have sex with this 16-year-old girl. I kid you not. The family felt he started stalking the girl. The family felt they had no choice. They didn't know what to do. They went to the police station a couple days before to report it, and the, it, the ball was dropped. When the police officer learned that this man was at the girl's house, they went. You know what happened? The guy who was there, the killer, the cop killer, he had better weapons than the cop. And according to what the police said, he was trained in it. And he had no prior military experience because he had just come out of jail. Yet he had training in high-grade military-style weapons that should not be on the streets. Again, where are these guns coming from? The ease and access and the supply 
of guns is what is causing the problem. A lot of people who have bought guns because you are a gun aficionado, you like guns. And then you get bored with it, so you take it to the pawn shop to pawn it off. And at the end of the year, the guy who owns the pawn shop is sitting with pawn shop is sitting with so much inventory, inventory that he has to get it off somewhere. So he sells it. So he becomes an indirect supplier. Gun manufacturers have the data on where their guns end up because they got they track their guns. Today, guns are more sophisticated than what our grandparents and great grandparents used in World Wars One and Two. Guns are far more sophisticated than that today. They know where their guns end up. Gun manufacturers know this. They know who in what communities across the country are using their specific style of weapon. I suppose if we were to find that, it would be alarming to the rest of us because it suggests that urban violence is something else. Urban violence is being promoted by folks with money who don't care that black and brown bodies end up dying. And so most other folks are saying, well, as long as it doesn't happen to me, as long as I'm not in the, I'm not going to put myself in that line of fire. I'm not going to put myself to live in that dangerous neighborhood. Because if I live in that dangerous neighborhood, the likelihood of me dying by gun violence is higher than if I live somewhere else. That's how deep the philosophy and the myth of dangerous neighborhood happens. It impacts real estate prices. It impacts whether or not someone will open a business in that neighborhood. Me, I don't even I don't even want to know what the cross streets are in zip code 48205. I guarantee you it's a neighborhood I will have no affinity with anytime soon. I don't even want to know what the cross streets are. I, I, I'll go research it just to make sure that if I'm ever on Detroit's east side, I'm going to avoid it because I'm not in the business of guns whistling past my head. <laughs> scares me, right? But is that a specific, that's, Zip code is where the gun violence activity originates and happens. And that is where it terrorizes everybody else. Why? People profit from it. Sometimes I even wonder if they sit down and talk with urban planners. I gather sometimes that maybe cities and city administrators, mayors and so on, probably need to invite Gun, uh, uh, the, the people who are uh, gun gang members, their leaders, to sit down and have a talk. They, I'm sure if you put it out there through the media, they'll send a representative to go and talk to them. Find out how we can bridge the gap. Violence is your only means of income, so you terrorize the people who live in that particular area just so that you can live. We've got a problem. And so policing then is based upon that. And that is what this writer is trying to address is to shift the focus. Let's concentrate on the specific individuals who are committing the crime. And let us concentrate on those individuals and the specificity of where they're located instead of attaching this massive policing to everybody else because invariably no one feels safe. Because are you going to call the police if you see something? No, you're afraid. You don't know who your neighbor is connected to. Maybe your neighbor is part of this gang or whatever. They see the police show up at your home. They tell others. And before you know it, you have a problem. 
right? We got to do something about it because this uh, kind of typifying of neighborhoods uh, lends itself to the fact that then neighborhoods are not invested in. There are no good schools in the neighborhoods. How will students become educated if there are no good schools in the neighborhoods? How will, if people don't feel safe, how are the kids going to walk to school? Especially during this stupid time of the year when the, the, the time change is, is an hour behind and you wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning and it's pitch black. And at 5 o'clock in the evening, it's pitch black. We need to change that stupidness, right? We need to change it totally and make it so that it, people can take their kids to school or walk to school in neighborhoods. The, the city administrators are just as bad. The city administrators do not, and I mean this with all my heart, the city administrators themselves do not, they are part of the problem because they do not attach and they do not distribute taxes and, and social services to address specific parts of the city. Detroit used to be a wasteland years ago. There's still parts of Detroit where there is blight and where there are overgrown weeds and so on. And you expect that there wouldn't be crime in those places? What are you doing with the money that you collect in taxes? I am asking the city, the, the city administrators, when I ask these questions, they, they look at me funny. I mean, I'm not exactly everybody's favorite person because I ask the tough questions. What are you doing with the money that is being collected? There are no social programs to lift communities up. There's no infrastructure. There's no investment in communities. You've got the darn money from the federal government. You get the money from the state government. What do you do with it? Why all the money is concentrated in just one area, but you're not investing in neighborhoods, right? Give the police what they need. Yeah, let the police go do what they have to do. We still have to maintain law and order, right? But at the same time, develop neighborhoods. Make the city safer. Pick the trash up. Cut down the weeds. Right? Detroit has, done, has come a long way from the days of Kwame. Right now, they still, in the summer, will keep the weeds down. But there's still a lot more there places in Detroit that I am afraid to drive. There's no reason for me not to drive to some parts of the east side of Detroit. The roads are horrible once you cross over Woodward and 8 Mile. And you expect that people who invest in these communities are going to have a long-term view they're just in it to make the money. When the neighborhood starts going down and people start moving out, they so does the business. And that, my friend, is the crux of the problem. What will the, Whenever I drive through these neighborhoods, I ask myself, what's going to happen in 10 years? What will this place look like in 10 years? What will happen in 20 years? Where are these folks? Where did they move to? What are their lives like? And what's going to happen if people have to move back here? Would it hurt, really, for city administrators to address this issue? I don't think so. Do you? I really don't think so, right? I'm going to post the link to this story so that we all can read it, right? And we all can study it and see it because it's full of thought. Because all over the country, it's not just a Detroit problem. It's not just a Chicago problem. It's not just a Baltimore, a New York, or an L.A. problem. It's in Milwaukee. It's in Madison. It's in every city across the country. Because we have just shut our minds that that's just a dangerous neighborhood, and we just need to send the police in there. And that, my friends, in 30 years has not worked. Because the people who are responsible for most of the crime is 1% or less 
of the population, and they're responsible for 70% or at least, according to, to statisticians, at least 50% of the population. I think I made some notes here that I want to leave with you, right? The most serious urban violence is con- concentrated among less than 1% of a city's population, right? Uh, the writers of this original uh, broken window policing thing are George L. Kelly and James Q. Wilson. Go Google them and look them up, right? We, need, we probably need to go look them up. It's the same people. The end of this is that it's the same people who are responsible for all the violence. It's always the same people. In every community, it's the same people. And another key thing is that, like the police chief had said, the people know one another. So there's a social connectivity. They're part of a social group, whether that social group are family or extended family or friends or people they grew up with or people whom they might have done business with in the past. They are connected. But are they likely to come forward and report this? Not necessarily. Not after 30 years of massive law enforcement where the cops just ride into a city and just lock up anybody they see on the streets and then criminalize people who had nothing to do with a crime that is resident in that neighborhood. That's the danger of the myth of dangerous neighborhoods, right? My name is Harriet Kemmer. For more information about me, you can go to my website, HarrietKemmer.com. I'm also available on other podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Spreaker, Breaker, Overcast, Podcast Addict. So wherever you are in the world, you can literally find me on any podcast platform. I'm also available on Blog Talk Radio. So you can tune in and listen to some of the shows we've done. We've been on Blog Talk Radio for over 10 years, so we have quite a content for you to listen to. We talk about these issues because these are the issues that matter in an attempt to erase some myth and to promote positivity amongst specific groups and specific populations. So I invite your comments. Thank you so much, everybody. It's Thursday. I got to go. Valentine's is next week. I know you're all love is in the air. Remember that song, love is in the air? Mm, I don't know about that, but I wish you the same. So I'll see you tomorrow on this edition of Down to Earth. I want to thank you so much for participating and thank you so much for your comments. I enjoyed them and thank you so much. Be blessed, everybody.